You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, I don't know about your house, but at my house, the Christmas cards are rolling in, and you probably figured out by now, if you know me, that I have a love-hate relationship with Christmas cards. Let's go back. Do you remember when you just bought a card that had a sentiment in it that said what you wanted, and you signed it, and you maybe put a line that said something personal, and you stuffed it in the envelope, and you put your 10-cent stamp on it? (laughs) And you mailed it. Somehow, like the price of postage, the ante on Christmas cards just keeps going up year after year. Now, instead of a line or two of greeting, we send updates. But they're not just updates. They're full on articles and poems. And they read like a who's who in American elementary school students. (laughs) Rather than a mere Sarah learned to ride her bike this year. I get a few each year that leave me thinking that I failed at childhood because I hadn't published my first book by the age of 12 or started an NGO to bring malarial meds to the farthest reaches of Africa by 20. And then there's the pictures. Remember the old 110, the Kodak 110 camera? The square flash that looked like a small explosion had taken place on top of your camera every time you used it? They gave us those three-inch square, fuzzy, strangely tinted photos, an effect that we can now add which I think is kind of ironic. (laughs) But today, today we have DSLR, and we can take thousands of pictures until we get the one that's just right. And then we can make it even better. We can move pixels to take away the bags from under your eyes, your husband's muffin top, or the black eye that your son gave his sister. And then we make an entire collage of these perfectly crafted photos, and we send them with our Pulitzer Prize-nominated updates, and we send them out to our friends and family. It's an ideal that goes forth as if it's the reality for the other 365 days a year. And in a season in which we talk about embodied grace and truth and light, we tend to shine an artificial light on a manufactured truth so that we can feel okay. Because what if people saw what I see every day? The cold, hard truth, which we often manage in the shadows of our reality, doesn't feel very gracious. How do you capture the divorce or the loss of your job or a loved one in a pretty collage? And how can you write your loneliness or disappointment or struggle to care for your mom with Alzheimer's into a witty poem? The power of John's gospel speaking to us today is that it cuts through the sentiments of warm Christmas cards with angels and babies lying in remarkably clean cattle troughs in sterile barns. It reaches us where we are. I mean, where we really are. And it reveals the truth that God is right in the thick of it with us because God loves us. This truth is grace. Pure, untamed, uncontrollable grace that longs to live with us every single day of the year. Truth and grace have come to us. They've moved into our world, our neighborhood, our homes, our hearts, if we're willing to be surprised by how they show up. And that's good news. We pray. God, meet us in this place. Help us to stop the laundry list, the grocery list, and just be here and find ourselves met by you, we pray. Amen. 
In December of 1992, I was on Air Varsity staff at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. A year earlier, I had moved to Massachusetts away from my friends and family, and I found myself working with these brilliant young women who today are doctors and scientists, leaders in government and academia. My very sort of out of my league role was to be their guide, to lead those who followed Jesus into a deeper relationship with him, and to invite those who didn't yet know Jesus to meet him and maybe follow him. And I'm not sure why I was so caught off guard on that snowy December night. As that community has for almost 200 years, we gathered for a Vespers service, an evening of lessons and carols in their historic chapel. So the service began in dim candlelight, just bright enough to show off the greens as they decked the hand-carved wood features of the walls and ceilings of the old chapel. And in this very dim light, a student read the familiar passage in Luke's gospel, the one that tells us about Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And then started the thousand-year-old Latin hymn, This day Christ was born, this day the Savior appeared, this day the angels and archangels rejoice, this day the just exult, saying glory to God in the highest. And as the choir proceeded towards the chancel, each woman holding a single candle in her choir book, the hall slowly brightened with light and song as they walked forward singing in unison. in that amazing quiet that Becca leaned in and whispered in my ear, do you really believe that a God who created the world, made, who made everything, became a baby? Diapers? Drool? Needing to rely on mere mortals to meet his every need? That's crazy. To this day, I remember that moment, the warm lights, the beautiful voices singing, and I don't know why I had never really thought about the implications of the story. I'd never taken them into account. It's not like the Christmas carols we sing exclude the strange fact, the little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay. Although to be fair, I'm not sure if the hymn writer had any children when he adds, no crying he makes. <laughs> But really, the one who spoke a word to separate the water from the land has now put himself at the behest of his creation to make sure he has enough to drink. It's absurd. I remember that we had all just seen the brilliant work of Robin Williams in the movie Aladdin, and all I could think of was incredible cosmic power. 
itty bitty living space. <laughs> the word became flesh and lived among us. The embodiment of God's life giving, life generating power and being comes to us in the flesh in the most unanticipated way. Now, I'm not sure I would have done it that way, starting so small and understated to make sure that I made my point. Wouldn't showing up kind of big and brawny and drawing attention to your arrival be a better way to announce that you were there? Wouldn't it make more sense to put on a dazzling display of might and power if you wanted people to recognize you as God Almighty, the creator, the judge over all the earth? And yet this word comes in a way that was largely unheard and unseen. Born to a poor couple with no connections and no real clout. Jesus is easy to miss. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. The babe is the embodiment of grace and truth. The parallel of John's earlier description of light and life in verse 4. How unusual... Those aren't two words we often put together. Now, I like grace and truth as much as the next person, although usually that means I want grace for me, and I want to truth you over the head. (laughs) Right? How often do we like to see truth wielded with powerful strokes to put others in their place? Capital T, truth, people. I don't think we sound much different from those who awaited the coming of the Savior 2,000 years ago who believed that the government and religious bodies were largely corrupt and should be judged for this. Or they believed that, look, if the religious body represented by me and my friends were in charge, we'd be so different. Sinners ought to be punished and shamed for their failures. The faithful who lived at the time of Jesus' birth longed to see the strong arm of the Lord come and clean house. How strange that God responds by sending a baby who couldn't even lift his head, let alone take Herod and his cronies out. We imagine a truth that slams a holy fist on the table, not truth coupled with grace that can be ignored or overlooked. What child is this? That God becomes a human is in itself remarkable, but surely the way in which God chooses to do so is as much a statement as the incarnation itself. John has used the word, the Greek word logos, but the Hebrew word davar, which means both word and deed, is so different. Because in the Hebraic world, when God says something, it happens. In fact, when we read, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light, In Genesis, the Hebrew literally reads, God said light and light happened. It's only three words in Hebrew. Light, light was. God speaks, things happen, and they come to life. I think I understand that sometimes actions speak louder than words, at least our words. Again, I can tell you I love you, but nothing says it better than when I take out the trash or bring you your favorite coffee. Or see that you're hurting and stop to ask how you're doing and stay to listen. Life-giving words speak through life-giving actions. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. 
And John's gospel demonstrates this repeatedly as Jesus, Jesus says, your son will live. And the royal official's son is healed instantly. Take up your mat and walk. And the lame man rises, takes up his mat and walks home. Go and wash, opens the eyes of the blind man. Come out, calls Lazarus forth from his tomb. Follow me, invites a ragtag group of people who have no business thinking they can change the world to walk in Jesus' footsteps and to do just that. Who is this God? This word made flesh. I used to assume that the story of the scripture starts with Genesis. It is the first book of the Bible after all. Well, that was until one of my seminary professors reminded me that the people don't really know who God is until Moses encounters him at the burning bush in Exodus 3. That's the first time anyone's bothered to ask, excuse me, who are you? As Moses wants to know, who is this God that's about to send me to lead the people of Israel out of captivity into the promised land through 40 years of desert? In Hebraic culture, to know the name of another is to know their definition, as it were, their identity, their qualities, and their character, or even their power, or their role, or their function. So to be nameless was to be worthless. So when Moses requests to know God's name, he's asking an important question that goes beyond a mere name tag. What do I put under name tag? He needs to know who stands behind him, because he has no intention of standing up to Pharaoh without some serious backing. And so God responds with the name that we know as Yahweh, literally translated, I am that I am. Theologians have long argued over how we interpret God's name. Is it I am that I am as a way of saying I'm me and I am not you? Or is it a statement of authority and power? I am the one who caused everything to be. You, not so much. <laughs> Theologian John Courtney Murray favors interpreting God's name in Exodus 3 in light of the verses that precede it, the promise of God to be with Moses. And in that case, Murray suggests that one might translate, I am that I am, more accurately, I shall be with you as who I am, shall I be with you. How excellent is thy name. God with us. The witness of God is integral to understanding the story of the scriptures. God is with us to save and to deliver and to redeem, we're told. And for the Hebrew mind, to be is not something you can do on your own. For to be is to be with others. It's a bit like the African notion of Ubuntu. The belief that my humanity is inseparably woven into your humanity. And God from the beginning has chosen to be inextricably caught up with human beings walking with them in the garden. God is with us because that's who God is. And that's God's power. Not a force over us, but a gentle presence with us, full of grace and truth. I get a lot of uh, blog notes from folks. And this week, a friend pointed me to one by Lauren Casper. I want to read you her story. Lauren writes, I was tired, hurried, frustrated, and ready to just go home. My husband John was pushing our son in the cart just as fast as he could to, to leave the store before the meltdown got worse. 
We were frantically trying to open up a cereal bar in an effort to stem the tears. My daughter was strapped to my chest in the ergo carrier, watching it all through wide eyes. Sweat beads were forming on my forehead, caused in part by my embarrassment, but mostly from the heat and amount of energy I was exerting by running through Trader Joe's with an 18-pound baby strapped to my chest and my year-old toddler screaming behind me. I sure didn't feel like I was going to be in the running for any Mom of the Year awards. I felt like a hot mess. In fact, I was sincerely hoping that no one was looking at us too closely, that somehow we were invisible to the people bustling around us. It was chaotic, exhausting, and unfortunately, an all-too-common experience for us. You see, our family doesn't exactly blend in with the wallpaper. We're, we're, not only are we two white parents with a brown son and daughter, but our son has noticeable developmental delays and different behaviors caused by his autism, and our daughter has physical differences with her missing and web digits. In other words, when we go out together, we stand out. Usually I don't mind, and I often love it. My children are beautiful, and so is our story. But some days I get so tired of it, and I just want to be a family. Not the adoptive family, not the family with the special needs children, not the unique family. I just want to be a family. And this was one of those days. I was close to tears when a voice behind me slowed my steps. Ma'am! I slowed, hoping and praying she was not talking to me. Ma'am! I stopped and turned around to find a young woman rushing towards me. A bright smile covered her face, and I immediately noticed her beautiful black curls, just like the black curls nestled on my chest, tickling my chin. Recognizing her shirt, I realized that she worked there and assumed I must have dropped something. I looked at her, holding back my tears, waiting. I just wanted you to have this bouquet, she said. And I looked down to see flowers in her hands. And she quickly continued to explain. I was adopted as a baby, and it's been such a wonderful thing. We need more families like yours. And I stared at her, stunned. Hadn't she seen what a disaster we were in the store? Didn't she see that we were barely able to keep it all together? Didn't she see what I felt were all my failures as a mom? I managed to choke out a thank you, and she patted my shoulder and told me my family was beautiful and walked back into the store. My steps were much slower as I headed to the car with my arms full of flowers and tears that had spilled over. On a day when I felt like we were the worst example of a family, a day when I hoped no one would notice us, she did. But she didn't see what I assumed everyone was seeing. She didn't think that what I assumed everyone was thinking. She saw beauty and love and hope and a family. She thought we were wonderful, and it made her smile. I wish I had thought to get her name. I wish I could go back and tell her, even two years later, what a gift this continues to mean to me today. To the beautiful young woman in the parking lot of Trader Joe's, thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are a treasure. Lauren's story is a not-ready-for-Christmas card moment, interrupted by a very real presence. This nameless woman, reflecting the light embodied in her own story, offers grace and truth, the real truth, to a mom in desperate need of both. Life-giving words, gentle, kind words, 
more true than the fears and the pain that go with being a mom to special needs kids. In the midst of her fear and uncertainty, God showed up with a bouquet of flowers and words of truth truer than her child's meltdown, and it was grace and truth and light and life for her very soul. I don't know what your real Christmas card picture looks like, the one that hasn't been photoshopped. And I don't know what your real story is today, the real one that won't make the Christmas update. But I believe that God is present and gentle and longing to reach you where you are to speak words of grace and life. And I also believe that like John the Baptist, God uses us to shine light that points other people to Jesus's words and deeds. Brothers and sisters, may you find your powerful God in the face of the weak and powerless. And may you find yourself blessed as you receive God's truth and grace and allow it to flow through you to the world in which God has sent you, to the glory of God. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.